Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Arnold Hanon Bloch has been a psychotherapist and success coach for over 35 years, passionate about helping people achieve their highest aspirations. He's a songwriter and a storyteller, and he is dedicated to engaging himself and others in what he calls the space in between, where mutually respectful listening between people with competing narratives is so imperative and sometimes so difficult. Born in South Africa and having lived in many places in the world, he brings a broad and deep understanding of the origin and impact of indoctrination on the individual and the society we live in today. I am proud to call him a colleague and a friend, and I'm excited to have you listen to him today. Here he is. So I'm very happy to be speaking today with Hanan Block, someone who um, has been a colleague of mine who started doing this work before I did. Um, And uh, I know that we've uh, had our paths cross uh, every once in a while and helping families or just conferring with each other. Um, but I know that there is um, more that we have to talk about than just this field um, and some of the things that uh, potentially led you into this field or have given you a sensitivity about the uh, the way that people are indoctrinated. So if you can take a moment and introduce yourself, that would be great. Sure. So I was born in South Africa um, in 1957, and that was when apartheid in South Africa was very much um, at its peak. And I didn't know it because people don't know when they're being indoctrinated often, but I was really from the earliest days on was being indoctrinated to think of black people as subhuman. And um, I think that's probably why later on in my life, I got very interested in cults and cult indoctrination. And I still am. I was uh, surrounded by a culture which dehumanized black people. And um, even to this day, I'm still peeling back the layers of indoctrination in the sense of coming to an understanding of, of, of uh, things that I used to believe about black people, uh, things that um, biases that I held, even though I thought of myself as a pretty enlightened and educated person. Um, in fact, I, I'm present, I've presently, you know, I've been doing a lot of writing about, about growing up in South Africa. And when you write, you, you begin to explore the different layers of, 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 of your experience. And um, I can just give you an example recently, which I found actually quite shocking to dis- to discover, was that I I was writing about um, our maid who used to live in a small little house next to, attached to the garage, our garage in, in, in our home. And I was writing about it and I was remembering how as a child, this a man would come to visit her um, when she had some time off. Of course, all, all the, the black people in South Africa were very poorly paid, not exactly slaves, but pretty close in a poor, poorly paid servitude. 
And that's a whole story as to how that came about. But I, I was reflecting on the fact that this man would come to visit her. And I suddenly realized that the indoctrination of my schools, of the society I was living in was so deep that I assumed as a teenager that when this man came to visit her, that they were having sex in a kind of an animal-like way. It never actually occurred to me that they might be in love, that they might love each other because I didn't, it, it sounds strange to say today, and frankly, it upsets me to say it, but I didn't actually realize that black people could love the way anyone else could. And it sounds so ridiculous, you know, given what I know today, but that idea was so deeply embedded in me that they were kind of savages, you know? So that struck me very, very hard as I realized that that's, that's how I thought about black people. And um, another example I like to give people about the effects of indoctrination, despite all my education and awareness and everything is, I like to say that indoctrination affects not only the mind, but actually your, your perceptual apparatus and your, your sensory experience. Because even to this day, um, I was writing about this in, in a storytelling group that I'm involved in. I was writing about apartheid. And I realized that even to this day, when I'm in an, an elevator and a black person enters the elevator, there's a part of me that still anticipates a certain odor that I associate with the black workers of South Africa who were often sweaty and, you know, they were laborers, a lot of laborers. So my, my, my perceptual apparatus is still anticipating a certain scent or certain odor. And then as I stand next to that person in the elevator, I realize, as I like to say these days, the only scent there is or stench there is, is the stench of apartheid that is still in my mind. So those are two good examples I would Set offer as to how deep indoctrination is, you know, despite all my reading and understanding. So I, I think of myself as continuing to peel back the layers of apartheid indoctrination. And if we get a chance, I could explain more about how that occurred and how, how, um, how insidious the indoctrination was. You know, every day seeing black people in a certain role, being fed messages of white superiority. So as, as you could, you know, you could tell when, when I came along, I mean, it would seem natural that cults and, and religious indoctrination for me was kind of an extension of my life, my early life experience. It's fascinating and I think very revealing and honest of you to be sharing these stories um, because if they just originated from you, it would say something about you, but it was because you were so conditioned and you develop this automatic response um, that now in retrospect is against who you are, against your conscience and against also what you're taking in sensorily, um, but that there was almost no way around it in the system that you were raised in. And it sounds like also just spending time with people who were of like mind just reinforced it over and over again. Absolutely. You know as you well know, people, people like to think of themselves as, as being resistant to all kinds of influences. But as, as you just stated, I mean, I think the truth is that when one is surrounded, um, I, I, I think that the majority of people are vulnerable 
to those kinds, to, to, well, to indoctrination. And in fact, one of the ways that I, I know that it wasn't, uh, as you said, wasn't when my true personality, because actually as a seven-year-old kid, uh, I, I was attending a party where there was a blind boy. And uh, I, I'm just telling this as a, as a juxtaposition for you. I, I apparently spent the entire party with the blind boy while all the other children played outside. And that night, people called my mom to tell her what a kind and sensitive kid I was. It just seemed natural that you should spend time with the blind boy. Why should he be alone by himself indoors? But that same sweet-hearted kid became a person later who was unable to think of Black people as fully human. Right, right. And so there have been so many... Um leaders in our world who have been able to separate the masses by making certain groups think of other groups as not human, less than human, you know, and I'm thinking of, you know, Nazi Germany, where everyone else was vermin, you know, they were just things to be extinguished like bugs, and an infestation, not a human being. Um, and so I think, yeah, if you can reduce people to uh, something that is less than human, then your emotional reactivity to them that would be natural isn't necessarily going to be there because the, you don't see their humanity in the same way as you did with this blind boy who was a human being to you who needed a friend. And so, yeah, that says something about who you really are and who you probably could have been to everyone around you had you been given the chance to be able to assess who people were through your own eyes and through your own experience and like them or not like them based on them, based on how they interacted with you, based on if you just like that person or not, but not based on what the government wanted you to believe. It's fascinating to, to hear that story about you just naturally reaching out to a boy who was blind, knowing that he needed a friend. And then also that you forfeited the time with other people so that you could, you know, you didn't go outside and play with the other people. You stayed inside. And it was a very fulfilling experience, I'm sure, for both of you. And now I'm wondering when you notice that you have this kind of knee-jerk reaction what do you what do you say to yourself that helps you get kind of grounded and remind yourself that everyone is has equal humanity? It's mm, a good question. Well, I've become very um, interested in indoctrination in general, so I'm always looking at things these days as uh, I'm very aware of the filter that everybody passes things through, that we all have a filter and we're all making meaning of life all the time based on our life experiences, based on our biases. So living what I think of as a conscious life, trying to be conscious of, of my own filters, the moment I, my answer would be that these days, the moment I see something like that coming up through my conscious awareness or what I sometimes think of as the third eye, you know, looking at myself, I'm able to say, wow, look at that. I, 
I just saw a Muslim man and I had a fearful reaction. Now, I'm now going to wonder why is that? Is that because he's actually somebody I should be scared of? Or is it because I'm a Jew and there's been a lot in the media about some Muslim people being disparaging towards Jews? So I'm, I'm continually trying to decipher what is subjective bias from reality. And, and it's, it, it's hard to do. It requires consciousness. And it also requires time. A, 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 a phrase I like to use a lot these days is the phrase lazy assumptions. We, we, we save a lot of energy by making lazy assumptions about other people. It, it, it's energy. Um, and if you, you know, there's a term also confirmation bias, which, yeah. which yeah. means that once we have an idea, we tend to want to see what is real and, and, and what is um, just a, a lazy assumption about another people. Of course, this is incredibly important right now because of what's happening in terms of the emergence of, of hatred, not only in this country, but all over the world. We're seeing more brazen anti-Semitic attacks, attacks on mosques, attacks on churches, so I think the whole issue of how we discern uh, what is actually real versus what, is, what are our lazy assumptions and biases is, is, in my mind, is very important. So that's what I'm dedicated to as, as best as I can, is mm -hmm. to try to keep recognizing that my reactions are not necessarily always accurate. They're always going through a, a subjective filter and I do my best to sort out, you know, what is me and my own fears and what is actually going on. You know? Right, right. And, and it says so much also about uh, early conditioning. Um, because if it's something that you learn as you're growing up in the world, it gets more deeply embedded. And that's why I think it's so important to be able to raise children in another way, to be able to have them see everyone as the same um, in fundamental ways. Um, I know that when talking about uh, being Jewish, I remember hearing about a summer camp. I don't know if it still exists. Um, and it was in Israel and it was for, um, for Jewish children and for Arab children to play together and to interact and have fun and see what was alike about them and what they had in common and that they were able to switch their viewpoint of each other much more quickly than the adults who hadn't had the opportunity to do that as young children. And that it's possible if you kind of catch it, if you catch it at an early age before right. it it gets so woven into your fabric mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, where you still have to fight against it almost each time. I think there's also something about, you know, the laziness is, is in the groupings also. All of these people are like this. And that's why, you know, um, I think that so much is happening with churches and mosques and, uh, and synagogues because all Jews are this or all Christians are this or all Muslims are like this. And so when you don't spend the time to get to know somebody individually 
then it is very easy to just group them as good or bad. I mean, it's a very simplistic, very black and white way of looking at things. Um, and for some people, that's that's where they're comfortable. And that's what helps them make sense of the world. And that's also what gives them a feeling of superiority or safety, that they're sort of taking care of the problem because that group is the problem. Well, I can give you a, a quick example in a high school, in the high school I went to in, in uh, South Africa, ironically, in a class called Guidance, which was a class where the teacher was supposed to be guiding the students in proper moral behavior. Our teacher frequently would say the following, and if, if you don't mind, for dramatic purposes, I'm going to try and say it the way he would say it. Uh-huh, sure. So he would say like this in a heavy Afrikaans accent, say, Never forget, children, if you give the kaffir a finger, he'll take your whole hand. Oh. Now, the word kaffir was equivalent to the N-word in this country. It was a derogatory term, meaning like a savage. And you had there this, like you said earlier, this division between us and them, and instilling fear in us that if we were to think for a moment of giving the kaffir any kind of generosity, kindness, that they would take everything we had. So there you had the direct manipulation of young people's fears and dividing us against them. This was happening on a frequent basis in a guidance class. And that's just one example I could give you of many um, where this division of us against them and feeding into, you know, as, as fellow therapists, we know what splitting is. Right. The natural tendency, unfortunately, in our, in our psyches to split reality. Right. This and that, us against them, black and white. So, as you well know, the skillful manipulator plays into our natural tendency to split. Mm -hmm. and exacerbates the split and young people don't know any better you know they right they just get the, they feel afraid right and they become victims of their own fear right then you have that us against them uh dehumanization polarization has been installed you know? right yeah and and i think it also speaks to uh, there are a lot of people who will say i have to try harder in my field in life just to prove something about myself so that I come up to the level of people just seeing me as an equal. And a lot of women feel that way in the workforce and uh, in society in general, um, just to be taken seriously. But there are a lot of people who might be considered minorities who also talk about that because they're viewed as less than. So they have to already kind of exhaust themselves to prove something that is just true about them that they are good people they're honest people civilized civilized people and um and in some cases m much better in terms of their conscience and their kindness than the people who have oppressed them so it's always sort of ironic to me that they have to try harder to prove something about their goodness and because it usually already surpasses the people around them who had so easily defamed them it's such a backward system in so many ways and and I think also with with apartheid coming to an end, at least officially, mm. 
what is your sense about what's different now? Have things changed in a significant way or not quite yet because there's still the ingrained racism? Well, you know, uh, I mean, I don't have to tell you people are, are exist on a, on a whole continuum, you know, right? There are people that are still, still resisting the change and would still use that word that I mentioned, which is like the, you know, still talking like that. And then I'm happy to say, I, I know South Africans who've really changed and who see black people as, as human beings on the same level as, as they are. Um, so you get a whole continuum of, of, um, of uh, attitudes and, you know, so uh, unfortunately as a society, I'm sorry to say that my understanding is that um, the manipulation of people uh, is continuing, but just with, with different people in charge. Unfortunately, the, the black government that now is in power in South Africa and once Nelson Mandela, who was kind of a harmonizing force, once he left the scene, and of course he's passed away now, uh, you, he was replaced, unfortunately, by, by black leadership who appeared to be as corrupt as anything that existed before. They're now exploiting their own black uneducated masses and creating a, a you know, classic, uh, very limited, wealthy upper class of black people now who are exploiting people. A lot of the promises made to educate the black people has been very slow in coming. So there have been some changes to narrow the socioeconomic gap that existed. Many white professionals left South Africa because they were afraid of, of, a, of a backlash. But um, so I suppose as can kind of be expected, there've been some, some real changes in terms of a more um, humane understanding of, of, of uh, people and their needs and, you know, but, but you still get ongoing, you know, ongoing corruption and, and, you know, all of that. So it's, it's, uh, it's, but I am, as I am happy to say that I, I have seen people change and I've seen friends of mine who grew up in the same indoctrination, indoctrinating schools and had the same indoctrinated attitudes who just don't think like that anymore, which is very encouraging. You know, they, yeah. And it's very encouraging and it, it shows that it's possible. I mean, I think it's possible if there is the education and also the willingness to take in the message. Um, I, I was going to say something before about what you were mentioning about having new people in charge who are corrupt and who are taking advantage of that power. I think it, it's an interesting thing that you see sometimes where there is this pendulum swing where there is the, the mm, kind of, I, I call it sort of the oppressed becoming the oppressors, mm, mm. you know, in order to really show that there is power there and that they've reclaimed power and um, they might not know how to use it in the right way or might not be interested because there's something um, very intoxicating about being able to make those decisions and oppress others and and make the kinds of decisions that are not necessarily healthy for society, but I think just feed 
your sense of control that you weren't able to be raised with. So it's, a, I think, an overcompensation. Could be, yeah. Right, but I, but I also think that there are just people everywhere of every nationality and every race who are going to be corrupt and some who are not, and that's just how it is. But I think also, I'm wondering, was there someone you noticed when you were growing up, somebody who, who was Black, who made you wonder for a moment if the way you were being trained to think was accurate or not? I, I think I have a perfect story for this. When, when I was a teenager, about 16, I was working in a hardware store and I found myself uh, filling boxes of nails and screws and things next to a black man. And he was a few years older. And in hushed tones, we began to talk to each other. Now, this was very much against the cultural norm because I had been indoctrinated to think of black people as, um, as servants, not somebody you socialize with. Yeah. But, but we discovered that we were both musicians. He was a guitar player and so am I. Mm. So he invited me very much against the rules to come to his township, which was called Molaking. It was about, I think, maybe 10 or 20 miles away. And in my um, naive optimism, uh, I, I met him. I didn't tell my parents or anybody because this was not, they, they would have been afraid actually for my well-being. Because remember, I'd also been indoctrinated to think of black people as dangerous. Mm my own well-being yeah so this man who had a car a very um kind of rickety sort of car uh -huh. he, he picked me up one sunday morning it took me to the township when and when i arrived in Molaking, mine was the only white face i could see in this entire place and although i was afraid actually i, I had never been in a situation like that once the music began and i i, I was jamming with these guys um I was, it was incredible. I mean, I was, I felt free. I felt like, wow, I can, I can be with these people. And there was no fear. They were much better musicians than I was actually, but I, <laughs> but I did my best. And, uh, and I was brought home safely at the end of the day. Now, the next day when I was walking through town, a man approached me in the street in an official looking suit. And he said the following to me, said, Meneer Bloch, which means Mr. Bloch, it's the Afrikaans. We do not fraternize with black people in this town. Do you understand? Oh, oh. So at that moment, as a 16 year old, I just froze. I realized that the secret police knew where I was. Um, they may have had informers in the township, I don't know but they were letting me know that this was not okay. And I knew as a white person that white progressives in South Africa had sometimes been imprisoned without trial. Some had disappeared altogether. So when he said that to me, it scared the heck out of me. And I never went to Mola King again. It was very sad, but it was a moment of opening where I saw the potential to have a just a normal relationship with a with a, a group of black people. You can tell how much I valued that. But the, but the fear was, you know, was was all trumped, trumped that, you know. The... Right. Yeah. It's a good word for it, by the way. 
<laughs> and so I, so I, I, you know, never went back again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What a shame. What a shame. Also to know that not only were the people there who were black, the black kept from being able to kind of be seen a certain way, but they were kept from being able to be treated a certain way by people who naturally wanted to interact with them and have a good time and connect on another level, either through friendship, uh, through being teenagers, through music. Right. And so that they were robbed of their humanity and robbed of being able to have white people show their humanness, their kindness to them. It's just being sort of, things were stolen on, on all sides. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I should say that um, there were many white people who, despite the indoctrination and the convenience of having such cheap labor, um, did do a lot to try to have more normal relations with their, with their um, I hate to use the word servants, but that's, that's what it was. Um, you know, they, you had a range of people, some who treated the servants just as servants, but some, some actually took an additional interest in them, helped their children to become educated, gave them extra thing. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't like it wasn't entirely, it all depended on, on you know, on well, human beings, right? Some people would, will just take advantage of, of um, cheap labor and totally dehumanize the person. I mean, many times as a child, I would see a, a, a white, you know, by the way, the black people were required to call white people either master or boss, never, never by their first name. And the maid in my house was required to call me master. When I, and just to, just to point out how the indoctrination, how deep it goes, when I came to America as on an exchange program, I had a year of, of an exchange program in high school and I in California. When I went back home, I was filled with all these egalitarian ideas. I had actually met a black kid here in California and became kind of friendly with him. But when I got back to South Africa, I said to the maid, I said to her, I don't remember her name. Let's just say her name was Maria. I said, Maria, please, from now on, don't call me master or boss. Just call me, I used my English name there, which was Arnold, actually. I said, just call me Arnold. And she said to me, yes, master. Oh. I said to her, listen, Maria, please listen to what I'm saying. Call me Arnold. And she said, yes, boss. Because that's how deep the indoctrination was. And she also probably understood that by her uh, attempting to cross that line, that she would be endangering herself. Right. You see? Right. Yeah. And so that's that's the other part of it is that through fear, through through imprisonment and punishment and, and black people understood that they needed to be very careful as well as mm -hmm. to how close they got to white people. Mm -hmm. He was telling me, hey, you know, you may you may have just come back from America with all your ideas, but I'm still living in South Africa. Right, right, exactly. And it's going to put me at risk. And right, I'm not willing to take that risk. It just, it, the culture of fear, uh, also coming from so many different directions, 
that um, you were raised to be afraid, like that story of, you know, if you give them a finger, they'll take your whole hand. I mean, that, that um, there is physical danger, you'll be overcome, you'll be overtaken. And that there was fear for you to be able to interact and fear for people who were the servants to kind of relax a bit and just interact in a way that showed that there, that there wasn't as much of that hierarchy that needed to be in place. But it, if they were found out, if they were overheard, not calling you what they were supposed to call you, then right there would be some sort of punishment. And so I'm just thinking of uh, during the time of apartheid, just how much fear people were under all the time. And I wonder if, I wonder how much it's significantly changed or not at this point. Uh, fear, uh, fear of apartheid or just fear of each other? Um, fear of each other and that kind of knee-jerk reaction. I can't do this because I'm gonna get into trouble. Yeah, well, since Nelson Mandela um, was released from jail and kind of um, was able to dissemble the official policy of government apartheid, I mean, I, th I think I think you get both. You know, you you get people that are still living with that fear, uh, and then you get people that ha or have freed themselves. And you also get people, like you were saying, about where people, the pendulum swings to the other side. I do have white friends in South Africa who say that they often now come across black people who are quite threatening to them because, because the pendulum has swung. And they're, and they're saying, you know, we're the majority here. You're just lucky to be here because the, there's a, the, the, you know, the numbers are uh, overwhelmingly, the majority of, of black, I think the ratio is maybe 10 to one, you know? So from a numbers point of view, black pe white people are much more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You know, um, speaking of indoctrination, I just wanted to tell you another little story before we run. I think we have a few more minutes maybe. Yeah. Which which I think it shows you just another side is that when I came to America, first I came as an exchange student, as I said, then I went back. Then I came back to, to study at, at a university here in America and I needed a job because I needed money. Mm -hmm. So I, I, was, I was attracted to an affirmative action program and I was hired by um, a Hispanic man who liked me and I, I was providing um, affirmative action counseling to high school students, helping them to, to believe in their ability to, and, and I'm sure this was like, um, we say in, in, in the Jewish tradition, we talk about tikkun, you know, trying to repair something. I think I was trying to repair something inside myself. So I was drawn to this job where I got to do counseling with high school students and help them fill out college applications. And, and the reports from the high school counselors you know, were fine, they were happy with my work. Well, it turned out that the director of the affirmative action program was a black woman. And when she found out later that I was from South Africa, she demanded that I be fired immediately. Right, so, so talk about indoctrination. This is coming at it from a different angle. So she, now what happened was that the Hispanic man, a man whom I grew to really appreciate, he understood that her bias against white South Africans was so strong 
as a black woman that she couldn't conceptualize that maybe I was somebody who was trying to break free of that and, and who was doing good work with minority students. That the, the reality that the, the college, that the high school counselors were happy with my work was not enough for her to overcome her own bias against white South Africans, right? Mm -hmm. So she insisted that I be fired. He threatened to take the issue to the school newspaper. Wow. Stood up for me. Okay. And she eventually backed down and I kept my job and I finished the job. And, but that was a very awakening experience for me because, she, you know, and it, it shows how indoctrination works is that even though she had a legitimate reason for, for, for sort of despising white South right. Africa, right? Yeah. yeah. She's a black, right. But she wasn't able to see me as a human being. Yeah. That yeah. I was, in a, in a way, an exception or trying to be an exception. Mm -hmm. Couldn't right. see that. No. And no. He, backed, he forced her to back down. Interesting. Yeah. So it, it sort of shows, you know, how indoctrination, I, I, my present position, if I were to sum it up for you, and I'm hoping there's more we'll talk about, I think that we're actually all indoctrinated mm -hmm. in, in different ways, you know, from the time we're little teeny fellas. Uh -huh. You know, and 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 if we're going to be aware, self-aware people, we have to come back. Like we said earlier, you have to constantly be aware. What are your blind spots? What are your biases? What have you been taught? What what is true? What is just what is just a narrative? You know, the, people use the word narrative a lot these yeah. days, right? Yeah, yeah. And so her narrative was that all all white people are evil. All South African, excuse me, her narrative was that all South African white people are evil. She couldn't get out of it. She couldn't see through that to see you and to see what you were also providing for something that she was running. So it was to her benefit to have you stay there. But right, there was this sort of blind blindness and maybe blind fury and, you know, for good reason, for good reason. Um, but I, yeah, I think what's so interesting to me too is how the process starts to get undone. And yes, I hope we get to talk again, but you've already mentioned a couple of things that help to undo the indoctrination. And I'm wondering in terms of the work you do with people involved in cults and people who were raised, uh, having uh, ideas kind of embedded in their, in their minds and their psyches, what do you advise people to do to start to break it down? What is what is sort of the helpful tools from your own experience and from what you've studied? I think it's pretty well known that uh, good information is is a very helpful tool. That's one thing. It's the indoctrination um, responds quite well to to um, uh, credible information, which educates the person as to how it works helps them to connect their own experience to, to whether they're reading, say, about Lifton's stages of mind control and, and, and connecting to each one of those eight stages, yeah. they start to become conscious of what happened to them. And they have now a credible source to, to connect it to. So that, that's very, the, the psychoeducational part, I think, is very important. I think people understanding their own needs, their own emotional needs, um, is very, very helpful. Um, being guided towards understanding uh, what it means to actually become your own inner authority. 
what does that mean to, to, to believe in your own inner authority? A lot of people, they may have come from a family where they never got any help developing that, you know? So that's a, a very important concept in my mind. Um, oh, there's so much one could talk about, about this. Meeting, as you well know, meeting with other people who've had that experience is very empowering because now people, any, as we know, people of, who have been victims of any experience get tremendous consolation and coping tools, coping strategies from other people who've been through the same experience. And I know you run a, you run a group for, uh, for yeah, who, yeah. right? Who have survived right, yeah. adults, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's helpful. Um, and I'm very, uh, just in general in life, I'm, I'm, I'm very passionate about teaching people about the vulnerability of the human mind to, 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 you know, one of my favorite sayings that I came across, I love to share this with people. There was a guy called John, John Bolton. And, and uh, he said, he said that um, a belief is not something that the mind possesses. Mm -hmm. It's something that possesses the mind. Ah, okay. It's so interesting. Um, so that's a beautiful thing. You know, certain words speak to a central truth. When you say that to somebody, right, that a, that a belief is not just something the mind possesses, it's something that possesses the mind. That's a, that's a powerful statement. And another thing, Anais Nin, who's a, a, a said, she said, we, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that. So these are, when you say that to, a, to the person who's ready for it at the right time, they get it. They get it. It is amazing. And I, I think that this is, this can be the, the launching point for us to continue this conversation because there is so much more. Um, but I want to, I want to thank you for your time today and, and also sharing really what, what was true about your experience, your conditioned response that is, as you say, uncomfortable to think about, uncomfortable to admit. It's not who you are. It didn't originate from you, but it's so important to be able to, to say it and to have people really acknowledge it. Honestly, this is how I was raised and this is what I need to overcome because it's not in line with my conscience. Uh, and so I think when you start behaving in a way and feeling a certain way that's more in line, with how you're naturally wired and uh, more in line with your conscience, you feel a lot better about yourself, but also you become a much kinder person. And so we, we need uh, more people in the world like that um, who don't just live their life with the sort of the old tapes, the old training and are willing to look at the new and are willing to look at the evidence before them. Um, so thank you, thank you again. And so to be continued, Sounds good. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye. Take care. One more thing before you go. It is very powerful to hear Hanan be so open about his feelings and conditioned responses that are so distasteful to him now when he looks back on it. And I really, again, appreciate his honesty. I'm sure it's true for a lot of people when they think about how they were raised and the views that they developed 
from actual um, interactions with people or just because this is what they were programmed to think over a period of time. I know uh, growing up in my family, race was not something that uh, was an issue as much as um, if we ever heard anyone speaking German or speaking with a German accent. That was enough to make my parents' blood run cold because of the Holocaust history in our family. So you never know what it's going to be. And the person who was speaking German standing next to us could have been the nicest person. But we would have had an immediate sense of fear or anger at that person just because we heard something that sounded like a lot of the movies we had seen on the Holocaust and Mm, a lot of the recordings of Hitler giving his speeches. So when I was growing up, I remember uh, really enjoying the song Free Nelson Mandela by The Specials, Special AKA. I thought it was a cool song and I really did care about the issue, but in kind of a distant way. And, you know, it's a song you dance to. I mean, that, you know, it's very interesting to think about that, to have that emotional distance from the gravity of what people were talking about in that song, which I think is the case for a lot of people not raised in that environment. And then when I had kids, one of our favorite songs to listen to in the car was a song called Fatu Yo, which is a Senegalese song about a child wanting to grow up to be as tall as a giraffe and as big as an elephant and all these other kind of beautiful images. And so, again, an appreciation for things that are woven into African culture or come from Africa, but still without that sensitivity, without feeling what it was like to be there and feeling the despair and the disparity. And then a couple of years ago, I went on a three-generation trip with most of the members of my family to um, an area in South Africa, kind of northern South Africa, near the Kruger National Park, and uh, we were on safari. It was just for a few days, and by the time we adjusted to the time difference and jet lag, we were actually on a plane coming back home. So we didn't really get to stay as long as I would have liked. But I do actually want to tell you about the experiences that I had there that stayed with me And I was just there, mind you, for a few days, but the feeling of it has stayed with me for all of these years. So knowing that this is post-apartheid by a number of years, I was expecting something different. And I know, again, I wasn't out in villages and I wasn't interacting with people from Africa in the way that I think I would have wanted to do. But still, it was at a place where they were sort of you know, catering to us, although not so fancy, but still catering to us. And I did appreciate the majesty of the animals that I'd never seen up close before and the vastness and the beautiful sunsets and having little baby hippos walking past in front of the room where I was staying. I mean, you know, for me, it can't get better than that. At the same time, there were two different safari guides that we had. One, a young woman who was sort of from the new school, so to speak, and another 
um, a man in his 70s who was definitely old school. We had very different experiences on those days. So one of the days, we were taken out by this man who was about in his 70s. And on the way back from Kruger National Park, I saw that there was a sign for a township, and I wanted to see it, and my family wanted to see it. And he said, oh, no, no, no. Our job is to make sure that you have a beautiful time here. And I said, okay, that's wonderful, but I'd really like to see a township. No, 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 no. That's not on our route, and we're already running late for dinner. He wouldn't let us see it. And when we got back, he then made an announcement that we had gotten back early and now we had time to rest before dinner, having completely forgotten that one of the fake excuses he used was that we were running late. And then the next day, this woman in her 20s was our safari guide, and she took us out for the day and heard our chatter in the back of the car, in the back of the Jeep, I should say, and could kind of get a gauge of where we were in terms of our social leaning, social values. And the next day, when she took us out, she made a little stop before we reached the gate, and she said, if you don't mind, at some point, I need you, the people in the back row, to lift up your feet and don't say a word. So we thought, okay, well, this is, this is odd. I didn't know if there was going to be a snake <laughs> coming into the... I had no idea what to expect. She stops behind a tree, and a woman who works there, who's on staff, comes in to the Jeep, laying down on the floor in the back. We lift up our feet, and we don't say a word. She drives the Jeep with this woman on the floor. <laughs> We're waving at her. She's waving at us. Uh, to, the, uh, to the gate. The gate opens. Our guide parks behind another tree, kind of a thicket, where the cameras in front of the uh, place that we were staying um, couldn't see. And there was a man there waiting in kind of an old rickety car. And this woman was led out of the Jeep. And she went and she sat in the car with this man. And then we went off for the day. And of course, we had to ask. And so the safari guide explained that they were married. And the woman who she had just smuggled out of this place in secret was pregnant. And she was only able to leave this place for one night once a month. And that was the only time they could see each other. So they had this deal worked out, where whenever the husband was able to take off time from work and come, he could hide behind the thicket of trees, she would bring this wife out, and they would be able to spend a few hours together until we came back. And then when we came back from our day, the woman climbed back into the Jeep, we came back in, and then she went crawling out when no one was looking. And I thought, okay, well, maybe this is just a very strict place with a lot of very strict rules about hours, etc. But here, the entire staff was black, and the owners of this place were white. And I was very uncomfortable by being waited on by a black staff. 
And also, I was very uncomfortable with the way that the owners treated the staff in front of us and also behind the scenes, but we could still hear it. And at one point, I was so upset by what I heard that I got up from my table and I was going to go talk to the owner. And one of the staff people actually stopped me and said, it's not good. So I said, uh, what's not good? And he said, later. So I said, okay. And I sat back down. And then later he came up to me and he said, we will get in trouble if you talk to the owner. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm in a very different place. The next day, I want to say this kind of in a strange way, but the next day, luckily, my son got sick and needed to stay back. And so I stayed back with him. And just as Hanan was talking about that with the government in place and with laws in place and the secret police in place, people could not interact with each other naturally, this was the time, this was the day that we actually met the people who were working there, and they really got to meet us because we weren't supposed to talk to each other in this kind of familiar way. Some of the guys who worked on staff, as soon as the owners left for the couple hours for the day, they started um, playing with my son, kicking this ball around. I was singing with some of the women. We were sharing stories. As soon as they heard the little alarm that said that the owners were back, they went off put their uniforms back on, and that was it. What was incredible was how immediate the connection was and how we laughed at the same things, how we enjoyed the same things, and how naturally we, we got along with each other and how quickly we connected. As soon as the people were not there who were standing in our way. Hey everyone, I want to do a special shout out today to those who help support the podcast for $10 or more a month. Here's a shout out to Allison, Anastasia, Ann and Richard, Brianna, Camus, Chris, Corey, Jake, James, Lillian, Maureen, Miss Nanya, Cynthia and Peter, Scott, Stacey Ann, and Sylvia. I so appreciate your support. I could not do it without you. Thank you so much for becoming subscribers at that level. And here's to more podcast episodes in the future. Thanks to all of those who support this. Before I go, if you have been inspired by any of the stories here on the podcast or have gained some insight, education, understanding, or even just the reminder that you're not alone, please subscribe to this show on Patreon. Your support will help us improve and maintain the show's technical quality and also increase its accessibility. I've been working in this field for nearly 30 years and have wanted to be able to share what I've learned and also have other people share their stories. And from the powerful and gratifying feedback that my guests and I have received, this podcast has become a resource for those who had been in systems of control and wanted to understand what happened to them 
or for people who are trying to gain the strength they need right now to break free. There will always be cultic groups and also always controlling partners, so the information provided here will continue to be timely and have an audience to serve. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.